Would you pray with me, please? Pray for me, but also pray for yourselves that you would hear the word of God. Precious living God, we, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your living word. And I thank you for your written word. Thank you for the testimony we find in the book of Acts about the perseverance of the disciples in preaching your word. I thank you, my Father, for the vision that we have of the heavens and of the end times in the book of Revelations. And I thank you for the mighty, mighty word of God in the Gospels by Jesus calling us to love one another. My Father, these things are not optional. They are the word of God for the people of God. We receive it, Lord, and we give ourselves to you. Allow your word to be heard and allow your word to be preached and inspire it in both things by your Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord. We give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. I'm going to ask you this morning, I'm going to do something that, as you know, if you've been coming to this church for a while, that it's not the norm. I tend to always want to preach from the gospel because I, um, I enjoy very much uh, hearing what Jesus actually had to say. But I am going to divert a bit. Uh, I think in reading the gospel, which I just read to you a moment ago, um, I, I don't think it's very complicated. I think the gospel is rather very clear. I give you a, a new commandment, not an option, but a commandment that you love one another. It doesn't mean we all think alike. It doesn't mean that we are all alike or that we all come from the same place. But it does mean that we have to love one another at all times. We are to be people known by our love. And that's how they will know that we follow Jesus. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples. You are my followers if you love one another. It's a sign of, of discipleship that we practice love for one another. Doesn't mean that we're all the same or think the same or come from the same place in, in our lives, but we must still love one another and love one another with the love of Christ. Today, however, I want to take you to the book of Revelations, and if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to open it to chapter 19 of the book of Revelations, the apocalyptic book of Revelations. If you don't have your Bibles with you, there are Bibles uh, in your pews in front of you, but you also have the insert that we place in your bulletin so that you can follow with us. Also in the bulletin, you have a sheet 
in which you can take notes about anything I may say that you may want to check later on or the Lord may speak to you in some way as I am sharing with you and you may want to check that in scripture or pray about it or whatever. So take as much notes as you uh, desire. But this morning, I would like for all of us to be briefly transported into heaven. I want all of us to be briefly and for a few minutes transported into heaven for a great vision of things to come. A great vision of things to come. We are going to be transported into the very throne room of God. The very throne room of God. I have a picture here uh, to show you of some a rendition of what the book of Revelations describes as taking place in the throne room of God. You are being invited, when I say the throne room of God, you and I are being invited in reading these passages that we are reading, we're being invited to enter the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies in the temple and in the tabernacle are a shadow of what is actually happening in heaven. And so the book of Revelation actually shares with us a little bit of a glimpse of the book of Revelation. So we are being transported into the very throne room of God, transported into the presence of the divine God, transported into the presence of the four living creatures. You can see them right up front there, the four living creatures and the 24 elders. And all of them are surrounded by an enormous multitude of angels that no one could count. But beyond that, the book of Revelation describes for us an unfathomable number of saints in heaven. An enormous number, impossible to count in the heavens. Saints of God, followers of God, from, from beyond time, during our time, and those that are yet to come. This is a picture of what heaven might look like as John saw it in the island of Patmos. We are being transported in reading this passage today through time to events yet to come what we might even call some of the events of the end times, of the end times. One of the things I want you to notice in this passage that we are reading from chapter 19, three different sets of voices that are being heard that are coming out of this throne room. Three different sets of voices. The first set of voices, as you read chapter 19, the first set of voices is from, it says, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. A loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. And um, 
when I think about this word, a multitude of, of voices in heaven, it, it takes me back to chapter 7. Chapter 7 of the book of Revelations, and I'll just read to you a small portion of it. I don't have it up in the screen. But chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, and verse 14, for us to identify who this multitude is. It says in verse 9, after the 144,000 are named and all of those things, he says, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This great multitude that comes out of every nation and every tribe and every people and every color and every language cannot be angels. This great multitude is human beings. These are the saints of God who have come into the presence of the Lord and surround the throne of God in the heavens because they have washed their lives, they have washed their their appearance, they have washed their clothes in the blood of the Lamb. It is through the Lamb of God, it is through the sacrifice of Jesus that these saints are in the presence of God. So when I hear in chapter 19 of Revelations about a great multitude speaking, this is the multitude that I am thinking about. A large multitude in heaven. And, 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 and they say, this is what they say, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged a great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. I'm not going to give you a lot of explanations at this point as to who this prostitute is or this woman is, but clearly the book of Revelation tells us or, or identifies her as the Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great. And I want you to understand that Babylon in the history of Israel was the one that destroyed all of Judah, destroyed the temple, persecuted the, the Jewish people, and pretty much destroyed completely all of the land of Israel, transporting a lot of them into Babylon. Babylon is the symbol of one of the greatest enemies of the people of God. But in the book of Revelations... Babylon is no longer existent. Babylon, as it is used by John, is a reference to, in his time, Rome. Rome is 
is, is, is a movement, a city, an empire that is doing pretty much to the Christians the same thing that Babylon had done to the Jewish people. So it's kind of a code word in Revelations that Babylon the Great is the Roman Empire. So here we have the voice of this multitude of people of saints that probably are there in heaven because of the persecution of Babylon, because of the persecution of Rome. Many of them martyred in the Christian era and beyond the Christian era. And if they're there, they're there because they have watched themselves in the blood of the Lamb who he himself was a martyr of Rome. So that the, the voices that cry out, cry out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So that's one set of voices. The second set of voices come from the 24 elders and the living creatures. And in verse 4 it says, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia, we agree with what the multitude is saying. And another set of voice comes up. This time the voice comes from the very throne of God. It is not God speaking, but it comes from that area where the throne is with the Holy Spirit in front and with Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And that voice from the throne comes out and says, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then another voice is heard. This time is the same voice of the multitude. The same voice of the multitudes that had announced the destruction of the Babylon, the destruction of the enemy of God. These people now cry out about the wedding feast of the Lord, the redemption, the vindication of the believers and of the saints. And so it says in verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the voice that before had announced the destruction of the enemy of God is now announcing a new thing, the marriage of the Lamb of God with the saints. And the beauty of it that I want you to not miss is that the wedding dress, the wedding dress of the bride, it says that it is of fine linen, bright and pure. 
For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We practice righteousness in a world and in a life that is stained by sin. We who are followers of Jesus are countercultural to the world in which we live. We, by our deeds that are deeds of love and of discipleship and of obedience to God, in our deeds as believers, we are stitching our bridal gown and preparing ourselves to enter the wedding feast of the Lord. And you see, here we're all the bride of Christ. All of us are this bride whether married or single, whether male or female, whether young or old, all who come to the Lord through the blood of Jesus belong to this bride that is finally, finally, after all the years of suffering and persecution that the church has ever experienced from its beginnings to the ends, it comes to finality entering the wedding room of the Son of God with his saints. Dressed in the most beautiful of fine linen, pure and bright, and that is, my friends, your deeds. How you live your life. How you practice the grace of God. How you live your Christian walk is how we're preparing to enter into the wedding and to wear this gown that only is worthy of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Every time you act correctly, every time you lift up God, every time you represent him in the world in which we live, in your own world and environment, every time you're stitching together by the righteousness of the saints, the bridal, the bridal dress in preparation for our time to meet our Lord. And the beautiful thing is that right after the voices have announced not just the destruction of Babylon, but the, the vindication of the saints, all of a sudden, the bridegroom enters the picture in heaven. All of a sudden, you have a, a picture drawn by John about the groom entering and, and coming out of heaven into the presence. Here's a picture of how it is described in the book of Revelations by John. I'll read it to you, Revelations 19. 11 through 16. The marriage feast of the Lamb has come, and Jesus is finally coming. And he reads, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. 
He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's a majestic picture of the groom entering human history. No longer as the lamb that was slain, as the lamb that was sacrificed, as the lamb that was crucified, but as the king of kings and lord of lords to vindicate the saints and the message of the love of God and the wrath of God to all those who have walked away from his promises. This is a picture a picture drawn with the, with the brush of John the Baptist, or of John the disciple when he was at Patmos. And he saw all these visions on the day of the Lord, a Sunday. And he saw all of these things and he wrote them for us to encourage us. In both the Old and the New Testament, in both the Old and the New Testament, we find the relationship between God and his people represented very often as a marriage ceremony. Both in the Old and the New Testament, we find the relationship between husband and wife represented in our relationship with God. The two most intimate and most personal relationships in all of the scriptures is that of, a, of parents with children and probably that's why we've been taught to call God Father because it's, you can't get more intimate than, than a child coming to the father or the mother. But the other relationship that is used continuously to speak about our commitment and our faithfulness to God is the picture of a marriage. And so we have, for example, in Isaiah 54, verse 5, we have God saying, for your maker is your husband. For your maker is your husband. Jeremiah 31, 32, we find Jeremiah saying, though I was her husband, declares the Lord, though I was her husband. Ezekiel 16:32 we have on that day he will in that day you will call me your husband. And what better picture do we get of a marriage to speak of the relationship between God and his people than the prophet Hosea? If you've ever read Hosea, God tells Hosea the prophet to marry a woman that is of ill repute, knowing that she will not be faithful to Hosea. 
and she marries Hosea, has a few children with Hosea, and then leaves to, get, to, to go to bed with so many other men. And God uses that picture to represent how Israel, he is the husband of Israel. Israel is the bride, the, the wife of God. And how often did Israel go after other gods? How often did Israel uh, commit adultery, spiritual adultery against God? And the whole book of Hosea is a call for that wife, that woman, to return to faithfulness because God desires to honor that relationship, even if we sometimes don't honor it. God always wants to honor it. And he invites Gomer to come back into the marriage, the marriage relationship, to repent of her sins and to return to God. The picture of marriage is a picture in the, in the, in the Old Testament and in the New of the relationship we have with God. And in the New Testament, my God, how many parables about wedding did Jesus use? A king throws a, a marriage feast for her son, for his son, and he goes and invites everybody to come. And everybody makes an excuse. No, I'm too busy. Oh, I can't go. I just got married not too long ago. I just can't come. So, so he says, go and invite everybody else. Jesus is using a parable about wedding. What about the ten virgins or the ten young women, five wise and five foolish and, and they run out of oil. You remember the story? And then they come running at the end. Let us in. Let us in. We want to get married too. And he says, I don't know you. I don't know you. How many times does Jesus use the image of marriage to speak about our relationship uh, with him? Even Paul, even Paul uses the image of a marriage to speak about our relationship with God. In 1 Corinthians uh, 11, uh, 2, he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. I betroth you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. I betroth you to one husband. That's God. To one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. How many times does Jesus speak of himself as the bridegroom in the New Testament? In speaking about John the Baptist, he says, you cannot fast now, but when the bridegroom comes. And he speaks of himself as the bridegroom. And then a passage that I find fascinating Fascinating, from Jesus' own lips, John 14, verse 1. All of you are familiar with this passage. We read it mostly at funerals. But I want to say to you that this passage has nothing to do with funerals. It has everything to do with marriage. Jesus says in John 14, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's not death words. 
funeral words. These are marriage words. Jesus is saying, I am betrothed to you. I have signed our marriage contract with my blood. Now I'm going away and I'm going to prepare our house in my father's house. There are many rooms and I am going to prepare one for you and for me. And then when it's ready, I will come to get you, my bride, and I will bring you and we will be together forever and we will consummate our, our relationship and our marriage. We are betrothed now, but I'm about to do something, and only if I go away can I prepare a place for you, and I'm coming to get you. See, these words are not death words. These are words of marriage. Jesus is committed to us. He's committed to us, and I want to say this to you. Hear me clearly. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. And whether we're alive or we're dead, we will rise and we will be caught up in the heavens with him and we will go to this place that he has prepared for us in his father's house. The relationship of, of marriage is used so often to remind us of our relationship with God. One of commitment, one of promises, of vows. You see, I want to say this to you. Today, now, we are the betrothed of God. We are betrothed to Christ now. We live in the here and now already committed to Christ. We are now in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. We are legally committed and it's been signed by blood, which cannot be easily removed or unpaid. Once the sacrifice is paid, that animal is done. Jesus has signed our marriage certificate with his blood. We are the betrothed of Christ. We are emotionally and spiritually bound to our Lord. We are living in love with our groom, one awaiting consummation at his return, one awaiting the time of the wedding feast in which we become the bride of Christ the wife of the only begotten Son of God. We are now betrothed, but what is yet to come for you and for me is amazing. It's amazing. But the marriage feast of the Son is coming, and our dress will be our righteousness and so we need to live this life recognizing that we're already betrothed. Recognizing that we are already in a perfect relationship with Jesus. Which kind of takes us to the gospel as I began to say that we love one another. That is the purest thing that we can do as we stitch together 
our wedding gown. To love one another. To love one another as Jesus Christ has loved us. We are not, we are not, listen carefully, we are not to betray this relationship just because the bridegroom is delaying. Hear me. We are not to betray our vows that we made at the cross when we became the bride of Christ, when we became the betrothed of Christ, when we enter into relationship with Jesus, we are not to betray those vows because Jesus is delaying. Actually, I would say to you, he's not delaying. We're the ones in a hurry. Jesus will come when the Father has appointed the time to come. The Father is being gracious in giving everyone an opportunity to get in before everything closes down. That's what Peter tells us in 1 Peter. In one of the letters of Peter, could be first or second, I think it's first. Because Jesus is delaying, it doesn't mean that the vows we have made can be broken by us going after other gods or going after sin or going after the things of the world or any such thing. We must remain the pure, bright, betrothed bride of Christ because he will be faithful to us. Jesus Christ is faithful to the vows he has made for you and for me. And as we consider that we are his bride, we are not to betray under any conditions what it means to live in righteousness, in the righteousness of God, both imputed by Jesus on us and us worked out and lived out. Just because Jesus is delaying, we don't have permission to commit adultery in this relationship. Be assured, be assured of this, Jesus is coming again. And what will he find when he comes? A faithful bride? Unstained by the world, forgiven, restored, cleaned up, stitched her gown in good and bright and beautiful and righteous deeds that exalt the Lord? What will he find? Jesus is coming again. And John sees in advance of the times. From the Isle of Patmos, he sees a picture of heaven and the voice that says, the wedding is about to happen. The bridegroom is about to come. And the bride wears her most beautiful dress. And she's ready to walk down the aisle to meet her Lord and consummate all of the promises of scriptures both in the Old and New Testament, you are that bride.
you are the betrothed of God. And we look forward to that day. But until that day comes, you and I must remain faithful and pure. I want to say two things in application to this. One is that if you're not sure you're entering the wedding feast of the Lord, you have to enter. And the only way in is through the Son. You don't get into the wedding except through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you have never given your life and your heart to the Lord, if you have never surrendered your will to the Lord, you need to do it. Because you don't want to be one of those brides left outside. Lord, Lord, let us in. I don't know you. Yeah, but I used to go to church with you. I read my Bible once in a while. Uh -uh. That's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I want to say to you to take your salvation seriously and your walk with Christ seriously. Struggle, struggle, because it's not easy. Struggle, but you must enter the wedding feast. The second thing I want to say to you in application is borrowed actually from the letter of Paul as to how husband and wife need to treat each other and not just husband and wife is how we all need to treat each other but it's it's colored painted in the words of marriage and I want to read this to you Paul says in Ephesians that this is the mystery a mystery of the husband and wife relationship is, is an example to the world of the relationship with God. And Paul says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You guys and all of us, listen carefully. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Our marriage relationships or what we understand as marriage relationships is but an example to the world of what it means to be married to Christ. Not the reverse. And if it works in the mystical, it has to work in the natural. As Christ has loved the church and died for the church, so are we husbands 
be ready to die for our wives so that we can present her to the Lord a pure bride. And wives, respect your husbands as the church lives in respect of the Lord. That is the mystery of how this marriage picture tends to get painted in our relationship with God. So to conclude, I just want to say to you, I just want to say I want you to realize that you are the betrothed of God. You are the betrothed of Jesus. And the betrothal means that you're already married to him. It just hasn't been consummated until he comes and takes you home. But in the meantime, we are preparing for that marriage moment. We are preparing and our deeds, our works, based on grace, not on our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ, that is what we will wear as we walk down the aisle with the Son of God. So live faithfully your faith. I know you will be challenged. I know this world tends to challenge you and me in our discipleship. Don't be confused. Jesus is delaying until he decides and the Father decides. But one thing is sure, he is coming back. He's coming back. And we need to be prepared to receive him and be received by him and fulfill all of the vows that we have made and he has made. You are betrothed now, but you will be the wife, the bride of Christ, the church. Live it out. Live it out. Amen.